Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. I want to start by addressing the fact that I'm releasing this episode during a time when the unprecedented nature of world events makes discussing anything else seem trivial. I love wine, but at times it feels incredibly decadent to indulge in the luxury of drinking and thinking about wine in the face of the enormous amount of suffering and injustice in the world. Actually, that's why this podcast is really about much more than wine, and why in every episode I hope to open a door, even just a crack, on a better world. But in honor of this time, and the history that is being made right now, I want to say this. Wine loves peace. Wine can only happen when we can freely and safely care for our vineyards through the seasons, ferment our grapes with care, and allow the wine to rest quietly at peace through more seasons. Wine is the delicious abundance that flows from peace. And I don't want to think of peace as a luxury. I don't want to live in that kind of world. So today, this episode is my wish or prayer or incantation for wine and peace for the whole world. My guest for this episode is Derek Trowbridge. Derek is the mind and body behind Old World Winery. He refers to himself as a soil farmer rather than a grape farmer, and this earth-first approach has led him to coin the term pastoral winemaker, because Derek has been making natural wine since before anyone called it natural wine. That's right. Derek is a true pioneer and OG in the natural wine movement from the 90s, and he has a wealth of incredible information to share from over 25 years, probably much more than 25 years of regenerating vineyard ecosystems and shepherding wine. We talk about exactly how he does this, bringing vineyards planted in the 1800s back to vibrant vitality by building soil carbon. Derek has multiple degrees in the science of vineyards and winemaking, and and he provides so many practical nuggets of wisdom throughout this interview. He talks about using sesame oil as his only fungicide, farming the only Aboriu vineyard in the New World, and how he is helping Sonoma County reduce wildfire risk while regenerating soil health with proprietary wood chip compost through his soil carbon management company. Derek is someone who has bucked the trends and just kept making farming first wine for decades. And because of that, he probably hasn't gotten the attention he deserves. So it's a real pleasure to introduce you to the beautiful work that he's doing. Enjoy. Derek, welcome. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Right on. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate you having me. So absolutely. I uh, I like I would like to just start with old world winery and that's that's your winery, right? Yes. Yep. Um, you do. You call yourself a pastoral winemaker. Can you start with that? <laughs> well, <laughs> what does that mean to you? That's great. It, it, so, you know, that was an attempt uh, to bring. You know, so this is all coming from. You know, I started Old World Winery back in 1998. You know, at that time there was no natural wine. You know, I mean, it was you know it was out there. Of course, it was available. But there was no term necessarily natural wine um, right. to sell under, which you know, for better or worse, you know, it, it is, of course that term brings a lot of uh, uh, conversation, should we say. But uh, <laughs> but you know, if you're selling a product in that line, then it's really helpful for the discussion. 
you know, back in 1998, I didn't have that help. And the way I tried to bring it, because we couldn't say organic wine then. Right. Organic wine was kind of got a black eye, you know, in the 80s. And so I didn't yeah. really want to say that. And um, and natural wine wasn't an idea yet. And so I just said old world. You know, it came from my grandfather to my great grandfather to me from the old world, from Italy. Uh, so, um, so that's kind of like the beginnings. Um, sorry, I th- I, now I thought of a whole litany of other stuff to say. What, what was the, the main uh, question you had? For- <laughs> well, no, I, I want that whole litany of other oh, stuff yeah. as well. I mean, I, I, I will, what, what I was asking about was the pastoral winemaker, but I, it is important, I think, to point out how, how long you've been at this. Like, I mean, you know, there were what, there was like you and, you know, uh, Katori, who maybe was yeah. around at that and, point, and that was about it, you know, in your neck of the woods. Yeah, and, uh, and Fry was around, you know, but Fry, right? But were they? They were. Oh, I guess yeah. Of course, they were doing zero sulfur, right? They were. Yeah, they, and and yeah. so there were two. You know, love those wines. There were two sort of factions, and you know, the Somalais didn't didn't love them, you know, and right. That's so. I didn't go that route necessarily. Um, you know, but that, you know, all of that is the story and, and pastoral winemakers kind of at the pinnacle, you know, it's, it's right in the middle because, you know, the, the, the desire for making natural wine comes from the desire to make natural grapes. And of course that's first. And, you know, I have 35 years of farming experience, so that goes back deep, you know, my winery I've had for like 24 years, 23. Um, and, so I, when when I was trying to explain all this to people in a way that they could care about, because um, a lot of them would be like, you know, all wine's natural. I don't care. You know, what are you talking about? And so there was a lot of that uh, backlash. And so the conversation couldn't even really come, you know, where I wanted it to go. And, and honestly, I've always said that everybody, you know, as of, you know, Sometime around 2005, organic food became a household name, right? I mean, the the Organic Food Act was 1991, and it wasn't until 10 years later that we actually had the NOP, the National Organic um, uh, Program, right? Yeah, program. And thank you. And so, you know, from there, then we had Whole Whole Foods make it, you know, popularize it and and reach people with it. And then it was instantly, it, it felt like in four years, it was just a household word. Natural wine doesn't have that. I mean, natural wine's more like 20 years behind uh, organic food. So when I'm going out in 1998, <clears throat> people are not receiving the message. They think it's natural and they think I'm full of it. And so, you know, how do you bring the how do you bring the nature? How do you bring the farm into the wine? And that's for me the term pastoral. I really liked it because it, you know, the pastoral setting um, is usually, you know, the shepherd, I shepherd my wines. Um, I really like the mm. term, but it, again, it just created more confusion. People thought I was a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, maybe I should have gone that route, but darn it, didn't. Um, so I ended up dropping it, you know, I don't know, a few years ago, whatever. Now I just say, you know, uh, uh, farmer, winemaker, owner, uh, you know, or those are, that's, that's my title. And, uh, you know, and, and that seems to work for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, I mean, just because I'm curious about these things. Yeah. What other kinds of 
observations do you have from this perspective of having seen the rise of the natural wine movement and you know and and have and far before that as well like yeah. you know like you said uh, back yeah. to when organic wine got a bad rep and right the rise of the organic wine movement and every, you know that preceded natural wine um yeah what w- yeah what what insights what and, and not just what insights do you have from your perspective like how do you you know well i'll have follow-up questions but one is like what insights do you have i'm just gonna lay it out this is a this is a five-part question i appreciate that yeah uh, <laughs> you may have to remind me like, along the way <laughs> I um like insights from your perspective yeah you know about especially about some of the the things that become have become controversial or become yeah. hot to- hot takes and yep. hot topics yep. um but then also just you know how do you find that messaging how do you how do you how have you found a way to navigate that messaging through all this time in a way that allows you to continue to repeat it without feeling jaded or you know how do you how have you maintained sort of telling that story repeatedly and you know and reaching people with it uh by but also you know i don't know like do you get bored saying the same thing over and over again you know oh I mean? like it's hell yeah. you know i, I mean I, I, okay i think that's why <laughs> you know a lot you know many of us just don't like going to the you know i mean you kind of need the big shows i love isabel Legeron. i love raw um but it's you know it's a hard thing for me to do um you know i'm usually there by myself and you're, you're just talking fast and you know as, as many times as you can say the same thing that's that's part of the job right but um yeah and and in, in some instances, it's, it's a real pleasure and a privilege to, to be there to offer, you know, my story to people. Um, and so, but, it, you know, but at the end of the day, after eight or 10 hours of that, it's, it's mind numbing. Um, but, you know, as far as perspective, I, what I learned as I went out into the market was that I was kind of an aardvark. I mean, th- there aren't many winemakers that are the farmer. And honestly, and I think all, you know, our, all of the customers think that that's the case, but I just realized as I, the more I went out, the less I um, really, let's see, my peers, you know, were just totally different people and they didn't get yeah. what I was really digging on, which is, you know, my making, making soil. I mean, and, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, for, for most people in the wine industry, it's all about the wine and, you know, we can talk all day long about a wine and that's great. I mean, it's great that there's a farm good that that can happen with, and it can happen in really in the ultimate high level conversations, uh, right. people spending the most money, but you know, I come from a farm family. So my, my great grandfather came here in the 1870s. And so I grew up sort of idealizing that. And I like my grandfather was the guy I wanted to be like, and, um, that was just, a different nobody nobody that i ran into had that similar experience a couple a couple people later did so you know my perspective of the industry is is really limited based on that of being that person to be honest i mean really let's let's just be honest if if you're a young hot you know natural wine brand you're a marketer i mean that's, that's what it takes to get it done yeah. promoter and a marketer yeah. and and there's no time for farming and so you know, those people do well and they're well known. And, you know, people think that whatever they think about me at times, and it's like, well, I'm, you know, I just, 
I, I don't have the time. <laughs> Wait, I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> I didn't have the right vision. You know, it, it, as a, it, if, I, if I were to go speak at business school, it would be everything you shouldn't do. I mean, <laughs> literally, you know, my vision was, hey, I can do it. Uh, I can, you know, I can make wine. I grew up making wine. I grew up in grape farming. I was like, you know, I don't have to pay someone to do that. So I can save money. I can start business cheaply. And that all was true, but the interface with customers, the marketing, you know, the outreach that it takes wasn't even on my vision, you know, <laughs> I, right, typical, right. you know, up here, we read a lot about people in wine. There's just so many wineries and people are always like, I didn't realize it took so much effort to sell and stuff like that, you know, comes up and, and right. it's true. And so. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was my path. I'm, it, it's skewed, but but from that perspective, the reason why I wanted to display that perspective is that it was the the years 1998 to about I don't know 2012, something like that. Really difficult times. You know, two big downturns had 9/11 and then had the 08 crisis, and it was right. somewhere after 08 that natural wine, you know, was a term and a thing, and people were choosing it. Um, and I was so excited because I'd had years and years and years of beating my head against the wall and, and, you know, and not, not getting as good a results as if I was a marketer or a, or a promoter. Um, but I, you know, promotion is not really my, my forte. I'm not the best at that. Uh, I like to have discussions. I like to farm and I, I like to um, create something that is, you know, what I think that place can do best. You know what I mean? Like uh, it's respective of the place Instead of yeah. some, you know, winemaker uh, idea of what a wine should taste like, I, I more want to shepherd my wines. And so when Natural Wine came here, I was so excited. And all these, you know, meetings and they're like focus sessions of the customers that I want to have. But then I, I felt like from from the farming perspective, I felt like like I got locked at, locked out of the gates to you know Eden in in a way because I mean let's be honest, Natural Wine's sort of a style at the moment. You know, I mean. Yeah. I mean, I can make all the, the orange orange wine and, and um, uh, uh, chillable red and, you know, like that, that, that I can sell. And, and if I was into carbonic maceration, that's really, you know, what's moving. And it, so, you know, the, st the stuff that I was doing, longer elevage, uh, you know, more tannin, you know, just it just was an aardvark and still <laughs> tough for, for the market to move some of that. So, you know, we, we shifted. And now I make wine more, you know, for the market, but I still have my artistic direction. But that was, you know, my perspective was was skewed. And there were many years where I was just like, man, I'm getting out of this. This doesn't work for me. And uh, meeting Isabel was a was she 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 came here at kind of a rough time. And um, that really helped. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, just to, to get fresh energy get me out of the doldrums of the experiences, the limited experiences that I was having um, and see a different way. And then, you know, be invited along the path, that, you know, instead of, you know, sort of forgotten. And uh, so that was good. No, Isabel, is, you're talking about Isabel Legeron. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wrong one. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know if you were married to. Sorry. Isabel. No, I mentioned her earlier and I think I was referring to her there, but in my head, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just making sure. No. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. If I if I mention Wendy and how she came along and changed my life at just the right time, I'm not talking about somebody in wine. That's actually my wife. Uh, <laughs> well said. <laughs> um, but no, this is this is great. I mean, 
I, I do agree. I, I, I mean, I, I've sort of talked about this actually <laughs> in the past about how natural wine is, um, I mean, what it claims, like if you ask for a, a definition or the guidelines, there's no stylistic guidelines for natural wine. But it, in reality, in the market, it is absolutely a style. Right. And um, yeah, you're right. I, I mean, I, I hope and I... I I want want to be like, yeah, hang on, because I feel like that wheel's got to come around for you at some point. Like what you're doing, I, I, I'm, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's the next phase. I'm no Nostradamus, but I just feel like there will be a place for it soon. I'm, I'm thinking because it is, like you said, I, I, the way that you approached it, it's not uh, a trend based. You know, it's based on the earth. It's based on the farming. It's based on you know this approach that is you know, integrated into an agricultural perspective. And I, you know, I, I see that coming for you. I, there's my, that's my, that's the best I can do, but I do, I, I do see that coming for you. I think that is really a beautiful way to approach it. And I want to get into more of that actually, and what that means to you. Um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about sure. your, your vineyards. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know... It, well, let's talk... You said... I, I like this, too. You said, Maybe before the vineyards, yeah. because that's maybe the, the thing that we put on top of the thing that's most important. But um, you, you were talking about you're a soil builder. And yeah. I've, actually, I've actually joked with a couple of people I should rename... this this The secret name of this podcast is the Ecological Soil Podcast, even though it's called the Organic love it. Podcast. I love that um, <laughs> So, uh, please, let's talk... Let's talk let's start with with the soil and when what do you mean when you say you're a soil builder i mean you literally are a soil builder because you have the soil carbon management company that you just founded recently and you're building primordial biome if you want to talk about that but maybe you also want to talk about what you meant i think you meant that metaphorically as well as literally um, if you want to it's all one actually okay yeah because one comes from the other you know you're talking about the offspring and the the, the right right. so you know it goes chicken and the egg right right it goes it goes back to uh the vineyard because so like you know, I'd, I had uh, I had a day job that I subsidized my, my winery with. Uh, I was managing about 115 acres of wine grapes for a bigger winery. And that's kind of how I started the winery, uh, using their equipment. And, uh, you know, then that kind of got sold in a real estate deal. And I was just starting to farm my own little stuff. And uh, that was about 2008. I got the opportunity to farm some of my the the, vine, the vineyards that my great grandfather actually planted um, over there on uh, Martinelli Road. Martinelli is my family. Um, they have a winery here in Sonoma County, and um, over there in Forestville, there's two blocks that were planted by Giuseppe Martinelli, who's my great grandfather, and I had the opportunity to farm them. Now I went in for it, and the but what I noticed was they had Utypa, you know, so one's about 80 years old, the other ones. 120 years old so planted in 1890 or 125 whatever the math is on that and i was just you know excited to be in what i call the martinelli valley farming uh this heritage that was my own which was never planned and but then what i noticed was it was in pretty severe decline you know you type a lot of is the name for a pathogen that that uh creates old vine decline it's a dwarfing disease you know you get they also call it dead arm and arms just die and 
you know, they, a lot of the arms hadn't been cut off and that's an inoculum. So, you know, we did a lot of sanitation those first years. And, and now, still, can you, I, I was, I was, cause I was going to ask you to go into a little more detail about your typo. Can you also spell it so that anybody who wants to look it up? Yeah, can... sure. It, it's, uh, I'll give my best shot. It's, <laughs> e- e- this is a test. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> you let me know. You give me a grade at the end, you know, hopefully I do well. <laughs> no, but it's E U T Y P A. And then the last part's Lata. It's the second, the genus and species. Species is L A T A, U type of Lata. It's a fungus, infects the, the vascular system of the plant. And so, you know. And that that yep. comes from pruning cuts right yeah correct yeah you you know i mean especially pruning in the rain which i've had to do Um, on occasion uh it's that you wouldn't think so you think the rain would wash inoculum off it actually washes it on i don't fully Mm -hmm. understand that but uh, but it does we we use product organic product to to put on the pruning wounds the day we do them uh so like vitaseal is that yeah, Vitaseal is the one we use to Vitaseal. yeah that's the the paint we use that there's another one um forget the name right now there's a there's a, 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 a like a, a beeswax type product where you just kind of can put your finger on it and and, and cover it that's oh. nice too but the vita seal is a little quicker <laughs> okay got it yeah, yeah. <laughs> just dab 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 yeah exactly with a glove you know it's a little easier um because the it's sometimes the paint's pretty watery and so you you can touch a, a, a wound with a brush but only half of it actually gets the material on it and so it takes a little bit more care um yeah anyway is is well i mean uh, and i'm digging into this because it's fascinating to me but and anybody hopefully who's farming it's very educational important to know but are there areas in california or any other that you know of that are more prone to that or is it pretty much anywhere oh i mean is there are there environmental conditions that are are, that make it that you have to be a little more careful well i think our desert areas you know central valley south probably less less indices right you know where you've got more moisture fog cooler climate that you know that's going that just favors Tip. all fungus in general right. you know and, and we, we see that with powdery mildew um th- this one's no different and especially since its life cycle um occurs during the winter so you know that if you're if you got a dry winter in the desert that's probably the only benefit is you don't get a lot of eutypa but probably limited growth from right. lack of rain but but it's a good trade-off right <laughs> right okay yeah. um great so sorry you were working with old vines yeah. Let's back to try to i'll try to not interrupt no worries i'm uh, i i'm taking some notes so i can keep track of where i'm at because <laughs> i'm old now i'm 52 i don't remember everything as well as i used to <laughs> but, right there with you but anyway the um you know, so these, as I was observing these old vines, it wasn't just the vines that were in decline, the soil. Like, I couldn't get mm. a one-foot cover crop. And I was like, what the oh, hell, wow. you know, happened here? And I've, you know, I've been a no-till farmer since, you know, 1997. And strictly, you know, I don't, I've, I've yeah. never owned uh, either at my day job or, or for myself. I've never owned tillage equipment. And that's been, I don't know, 23, 24 years. So I've kind of forgot what I knew earlier about, you know, the, what happens with tillage. And then it started to illuminate for me here where, you know, these are old vines, there's no trellis. So they're, they're cross tilling. And when you cross till, you mean you, 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 you know, you, you, you till one way and then you do 90 degrees, you till the other way. So every part during that tillage 
or, or there are parts that are tilled twice actually in the same moment. Right. And you can right. see those depressions in there. They're permanent. And I was viewing this and I was viewing no, no soil. That's just what we would call subsoil. Subsoil is not topsoil and doesn't promote plant growth really well. And some people think it doesn't matter because old vine roots are down 60 feet. That's pretty damn far. Um, but there's no life at 60 feet. That's what people have to remember. See, plants don't, they, 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 they don't uh, absorb minerals on their own. Um, it's right. a key component. And so they need help either from bacteria or water. And what we're doing today, in my opinion, in conventional farming is hydroponic farming in a soil medium. And it's all right. fertigation. And without it, those plants die because the soil is dead. Um, I was viewing dead soil. And so what brings life back to the soil? There's only one thing that brings life back, carbon. You can spray microbes all day long and do you know some other cool things, compost teas, all that. But if you aren't putting real carbon back in the soil, it's going to take a long time to for those microbes to have a home because they die. You know, the sun yeah. is on the soil. Anyway, um, I mean, I could talk for too long on that, so I'll, I'll curb it. But but the the uh, the but the but getting carbon back in is the key. And so at that time, I started to look around. My budget was zero. You know, I just you know gotten out of my day job and I didn't have a lot of money and and I was starting this thing. And so I found a bunch of guys that um, do tree work and, you know, that's a good carbon source. It's not a good nitrogen source. And um, and I started c composting this material and it's not easy to work with. You got to kind of know it. It takes a good year plus to break down. Um, but we were using fungi to inoculate the uh, or we were inoculating the wood chips with fungi and then the fungi grow. Now, the fungi are the key because, you know, the soil food web is coined by um by Elaine Ingram up in Oregon, mm -hmm. you know, that was back in the late nineties, you know, she's the first one that really illuminated for the community, the farming community, what the soil life actually was. I mean, I got a bachelor's degree in viticulture and a master's degree in winemaking, but also, uh, but it's also in plant science. And we were never taught, uh, even at graduate level about the soil food web that all came from Elaine Ingram and we right. thank her. And so, but none of that, you know, for that uh, life to come to your soil, there's got to be carbon. Without it, you've just got a mineral substrate. And so, you know, but when you add the fungi, the fungi are the great middleman. And I call them the house dealer, you know, uh, <laughs> house wins both ways, right? They win coming and going, they get paid no matter what. And so do the fungi, you know, so the, so the roots, just a quick, you know, quick basics here, the, you know, the roots have our um, ectomycorrhizal and endomycorrhizal fungi, also known as arbuscular mycorrhiza. Um, and they, they, they hook onto the roots and permanent. I mean, it, they are part of the plant. They're an outreach of the plant. And what I tell everybody is that using this material with the fungi on it, the fungi get on the roots and then double the root system that makes the plant more resilient. We never saw the results more than we saw last year, which was the, you know, 2021 was the biggest drought I've seen in my lifetime, 50 years. And, and certainly during my farming tenure, the biggest that I've ever seen. And, and, um, and we had a bumper crop on the 80 and 100 year old, 120 year old vines. Um, people, wow. you know, were shocked at how much, you know, we picked out there. And 
that's the beautiful, you know, I mean, really back to Fukuoka, uh, um, Masumoto Fukuoka, who wrote the um, One Straw Revolution in the 70s, <clears throat> excuse me, he, uh, you know, he said, do less or, or do nothing really is what he said, but people tend to take that yeah. literally. That's, that's not what it means. You still got to chop wood and carry water. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. but, uh, um, but, you know, if you, if you target your efforts, then the whole system and treat it like a system, the whole system needs less effort. And what I was doing was, you know, spending a lot more time and energy building the soil material, putting it out there. It takes a lot of labor. Um, people questioned whether it was valuable, or worth it. But then when it's on the soil, it uh, it creates, it, it inoculates or regenerates life. And so then you, you have all these other opportunities. We don't need, you know, we get better vigor in the plant. We don't need to spray as often. And I, at this point, I don't spray those with any pesticides. I used to dust sulfur. I don't even do that. I only use sesame oil uh, for uh, for for powdery mildew um, and a, a little foliar fertilizer in there with it to bolster these these old guys. Um, really? Yeah. Sesame oil. Yeah, yeah. There's a product on the market co- called Organicide. I get it from okay. Useful Valley Farm Supply. They're a good supplier, um, and it's sesame oil, fish oil, and then a few other things. And I usually tank mix it with some some type of uh, seaweed-based fertilizer. Um, like a foliar, okay. Yeah, and boy, the plants love it when I spray that because it's doing two things. It's killing powdery mildew in a natural way and even some insects that aren't good, like leaf miners, uh, but not killing okay. not killing bees. And so I, Ray, is it smothering the leaf miners? Yeah, is that the deal? yep, yep. Yeah. Yep, it smothers those guys. That's fascinating. That's great. I got to look into that. Um, yeah, so... so- Wow. What we just what we saw was that the the whole the whole system came back to health, came back to life. So we didn't have to do as much, except for we had to mow more and more often. Right. Because now we're sequestering <laughs> well, an incredible amount of carbon into that grass. So and don't the I mean the cover crops are also I mean isn't photosynthesis a way to get carbon into the soil too? Right. You, the, any living plant will be bringing that carbon out of the air and putting it down in the roots for the for the mycorrhizae right yeah yeah let's just do a basic on that real quick because there might be people in the audience that don't don't know but so you know there there are a number of ways to get carbon in the soil the the best uh is you know photosynthesis is by far the 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 only way um to get it out of the atmosphere um so when when carbon dioxide goes into the plant it creates plant matter right the plants all of the plant structure, whether it's a tree or a grass stem, is carbon from the atmosphere. It is nothing else but that. Uh, and thank God for photosynthesis, because that's how they do it, right? They, and during that process, you know, so they're taking carbon and they're making it substrate in their body. Um, but they're also sending glucose, which is six carbon chains, down the root system, and that feeds the microbes. So that's like having your own herd, right? And so they put it down there, and I call it, you know, the, the fungi love it because they eat off of that glucose and then they also stick it out because they're the furthest out from the plant and then they interact with the, the bacteria. I call it the bacteria comfort little glucose kisses and then they go back out. The bacteria, the bacteria are the nutrient cyclers. So they go out, get, uh, get minerals, which the plant can't get on its own, see? bring it back and when they're kissing the glucose kisses they lose the the plant fleeces them (laughs) or the fungi fleeces them of their um minerals 
and then they go back right. for more minerals in a cycle and it works beautifully uh when it's when the soil's alive um and but yeah I, yeah i i was just listening to a, a scientist recently describe this i mean just to sort of one of the things that I love these sort of beautiful moments uh, of, of admission, you know, when science crosses into that threshold. But it was when they were trying to define bacteria and fungi, especially in the soil, you know, as soil scientists, and how the only way that they could really define them uh, was by their relationships. So, there, you know, they be- began to realize that they couldn't separate them from, like, there weren't these indistinct things like the entirety, the entire system is alive as a thing. And I guess, you know, if you translate even bigger, extrapolate that, you know, it gets, it gets to encompass all of us really, (laughs) if you think about it. Um, Right. But I, I I love how our language leads us to try to, you know, create separation, but that's right. When you start, you know, I love, I love when you reach the end of of the, the limits of our language, when you're trying to actually, nail down what some the isness of something and you run into just you know the, the failure of our language to sort of capture the the complex and beautiful web that is the totality of of this thing that we're we're dealing with and and working with perfectly said. Um, but okay so that that sounds so and and you're still farming the the vineyards that you started farming back then right yeah yeah and more you know i I farm a bunch of little little sites they're just you know just little places that uh are kind of special um and you know it's now do you did you acquire them by purchase are you leasing are you are you just doing a favor for something that's been abandoned otherwise (laughs) or what's the mostly that but but it's it's honestly you know the only thing i own is the the winery site which has an acre vineyard it has uh you know about a half acre where i make the soil material and then the tasting room and and winery but everything else you know because land's just so expensive up here is really stuff that that no one else wants to farm it's too small um right that kind of thing i meet a lot of a lot of owners you know not all owners are good partners uh, so I've learned to, unfortunately, the hard way, but I, I've learned to pick and choose and, and also, you know, try to get the right varietal, but, uh, or the right blend, but, but yeah, so I, I think I right. farm like six or seven different little plots today. Oh, wow. So, I mean, just a question for anybody who might want to do what you're doing. What, what are the the hallmarks of a, of a good owner and <laughs> somebody that you could have a, <laughs> so what to look for in uh, establishing that kind of relationship, building that relationship. Oh my God. Well, you know, I mean, really that's just any relationship, right? Like how do you, how do, I've learned, <laughs> you know, certainly after I got my divorce, you know, I really had to, to learn like, what does it mean to seek, you know, a good, what's, what's, what does it look like? What's, who, what's a good partner for me? Um, right. So you know, and that's been, you know, a long time of, of, of seeking that everybody, you know, probably has to answer that for themselves. But the criteria for me are, you know, the person has to have, has to care, you know, if they don't care, then that could be good that they leave you alone, but then it right. could also be, there's, you know, there's a reason for not caring. And sometimes that is a problem. Um, and I can't yeah. think of an example, but I, I know that is true. And, um, and then there's others that care too much and get all in your, your stuff. And, and then there's those that want to control it and they want to control it through you and they want you to do what they want to do. And I never go for that anymore. Um, 
(laughs) (laughs) But, you know, but the best, the best thing to do is not be desperate. I mean, honestly, all the mistakes I've made were just from desperation and nobody needs to do that. Uh, Just, I mean, I, when I find myself saying, oh, you know, they'll trust me later or stuff like that, you know, those kind of, that kind of language in the head is really just trying to explain away what your, your inside feelings not working. And some people are really good at that. Um, I had to learn it as a skill. Uh, yeah, no, totally. Yeah. No, I, that, me too. I know. And I feel that. Um, that's good. Okay. So great. So um, please tell, tell us some of the stuff that's, that you've, these grapes that are, that are in these vineyards. I mean, what are the, are they all, I mean, yeah. Tell us about some of them or all of them, any, the vineyards, what they're like, what the, what the grapes are, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. My, my favorite thing these days is blending. Um, I, I really, I mean, I think I originally got in the market to make the best varietal, but that was with the mindset that the, that the market had then, you know, I mean, the varietal market just came in, in between the fifties and the seventies. That's really when varietal wine became a thing and it only became a thing in the U S um, not elsewhere. And I know it's so weird and it's so unsustainable as, <laughs> as you know what I mean? Like I, 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 you know, anybody that listens to this podcast will have heard this before, but you know, just the idea that we're stuck with these things, regardless of what happens to the climate or, you know, it's, Hey, you know, why can't it just be a place? Like I, I noticed that you named some of your wines from, of the vineyard basically, or, or, or yeah, I, I, I believe that's true. Yeah. Um, and I love that idea. Like, why can't that be enough? Right. <laughs> um, and then that vineyard can adapt and change and continue to f- evolve throughout time. And, and in a hundred years, hopefully, hopefully it won't be the same grapes being grown because mm. newer, better, you know, you'll, because somebody will have cared for it and loved it. And that means a process. It doesn't mean you've arrived any, at any point. Um, anyway, I'll shut up. Yeah, well, <laughs> well said, you know, I mean, it's just, I think for me, it was simply a, a pathway of the palate, honestly, which is how I got to natural wine anyway. Because, you know, yeah. when I was growing up drinking my grandfather's wines, I didn't know that they were natural. I thought all wine was natural. And right. there was no question, there, there was no thinking that it wasn't or it was. It just was, you know, it just was a thing that was unto itself. I didn't see two different classifications. And uh, when I got into the master's degree at Fresno State, I was like, holy shit, they're just teaching me to do manufacturing. Like, that's all this is, you know, write work orders. I'm going to sit in a desk job. You know, that's that's horrible for me. Right. Uh, And I, you know, I went there to learn, you know, to learn to do it. That was one of the reasons why I went to Fresno at that time, which was in the late 90s. Davis didn't have their winery yet and all that. So anyway, Fresno did. And, uh, And so... Then I started to, you know, I was doing the techniques that I was learning and I wasn't liking the results from one yeast. And I was even using a native yeast that was uh, isolated from what's called the Williams Sodium Slant, which came from the Lino Martinelli Jackass Hill uh, that was made in the barn that I now own. This was where Williams Sodium Winery started out at, at the place that, that is now Old World Winery. And oh, wow. yeah, and that was a piece of history for me. And it, that wasn't a plan to buy that either. It just sort of happened. And uh and even with that, as a, as a, uh, an isolated um, native yeast, I still didn't love the singular character. And uh, a friend of mine at school at the time, Jeff Cohn, 
was doing natural wines or, or doing his thesis on natural wines. And I, I was learning from him that, you know, there's actually 25 species in a natural ferment. Plus, I mean, it's not, you know, right. it's not limited. It takes a lot of effort to find out exactly how many are there. And they all <laughs> right. have different life, you know, bell curves. And um, so then as I started to drink more with that in mind, my, my palate likes complexity because that's what I grew up drinking was natural wine complexity. I don't want one yeast. And then I yeah. started to learn that that's the same for varietal with me. I like the complexity. I don't want a singular, I, you know, my palate gets kind of born, bored on the, the third the third sip. So, um, you know, so then I just started to make wines that way. At first, you know, it was all varietal because, you know, you have to go with this Infanella. They don't, there's no way to talk. <laughs> what is it? You know, it's like, well, it's, it's a blend. Okay, well, that's going to go in the blend section, which is all cheapo stuff. So couldn't do that. <laughs> But, you know, now we've got, you know, for instance, Gotha Gao, you know, one of the most expensive and popular natural wines, amazing, amazing stuff. And they're virtually all field blend. Um, yeah. And some of these, there's there's others. Uh, and, and I can't think of at the moment. But I just love that. And so I, I've been, you know, embracing that these last, oh, man, I think I've been making, you know, tre- trending towards more blends this last 10 years. And uh my palate just does like them. And I, I definitely, like you, like you mentioned, I try not to mix vineyards unless I have to. I always like to taste the vineyard. And if I can get a couple varietals, that's even better. Um, but I, I'm mixing vineyards now with some of the bigger blends because, you know, I mean, let's be honest, the markets, you know, expensive wine doesn't really sell well in, in natural wine unless you're got a gal. But um, <laughs> the... Uh, so, you know, so the cheaper stuff has to be, you know, kind of blend a mix of, of vineyards. And, and I like that, too. I mean, I'm really happy with what we're what we're putting out in the market right now. So when when do you do that blending? Is it when you bring the grapes in or you're when you're blending yeah. barrels at the end? Yeah, the way I explain that is it's a, there's a synergy, right? So so when you blend as barrels at the end or, or right the day of bottling, which which I'll do, you know, at times because I don't, you know, I, not all grapes are ready at the same time to, to blend as fruit right you know right um and that's fine but but typically what you get is one plus one equals two you know when you blend yeah. as, as a wine right and that's cool but but i like to have one plus one equals three i mean there's a synergy there if, yeah and i've done this a number of times i used to get five varietals from one vineyard and i would make them all separate and i would co-ferment some and then i would taste the co-ferment against the same level of blending usually petite Syrah and Zinfandel and and make that blend um and so I had it this from the same vineyard same block either co-fermented or not co-fermented and you know the the not co-fermented meaning different varieties together I mean I know natural wine market tends to think co-ferment means you know wine and cider at the moment but but used that term used to be you know multiple varieties and uh so I like I still say co-ferment as you know multiple varieties and um, I, they just always taste better. There's something more generated. There's a synergy that creates a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. So you get one yeah. equals equals three, and that's what I try to bring to the customer. That's nice. Yeah. Um, how, how can you talk about some of that? Yeah. Some of what you're doing in the winemaking, especially like what's how do you approach the winemaking? <laughs> let, let me ask a specific question to get you rolling. <laughs> how <laughs> you uh, well so. I mean, at least on your website, you say you do uh, add a little sulfur in barrel. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I'd be curious about the timing of that. And then 
Um, I'm still guessing since you're going minimal and the, you know, with any wine, you want to be protective. What are you, what are the things that you find are the most important in lim- in keeping the wine from going into a bad direction, you know, from getting a spoilage microorganism, mm. microorganism bloom? Yes. Good one. Um, well, you know, the sulfur, the sulfur I use in the shepherd way. So, you know, if I, if I need to steer a wine, I'll use sulfur to, to steer it. Um, right. You know, so it's not just by recipe, like every, every wine yeah. at three months in barrel gets a dose of whatever. It's like yeah. you're, you're monitoring it, you're, you're analyzing it and seeing how it's progressing. And yeah. Yeah. Maybe- I mean, you know, talking about sulfur just for a minute, you know, I mean, the, 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 it's been, you know, fairly demonized in the natural wine group, which is fine. I mean, and it deserves that. Um, and, you know, because most conventional wineries are hitting the grapes with 30, pe- 30 parts per million of sulfur to kill the incipient fermentation. And so it comes in with 30 parts just to the crusher. Then as soon as it moves again, they'll hit it again. And they hit it at every step that it moves. And then they maintain it during storage. Uh, at 50 to 100, I mean, you know, some of the whites can have 400 parts per million sulfur like that. That's going to be obnoxious to drink for some of us that are sensitive, which I am. Um, yeah. So, you know, for me, I I use it to steer it. So, so I want the wine to be fermented. I don't ever want to have to give it sulfur during the fermentation process. After that, if it's going... A, a direction that I don't like, I'll hit it with a little bit of sulfur, you know, like five parts per million, 10, something like that. And just kind of steer it around and see how it, how it progresses. And then at, at bottling, I'll hit it with, you know, 30 is what I like to have in the wines um, bo- at bottling. I think it helps make them more shippable. Uh, I get less complaints from wholesalers. You know, I just, that's, that's kind of like my recipe. 30 parts really works for me. And, and that's not noxious to the system at all. In fact, it, it might be even negligible. A lot of the time, if you, you know, if you add sulfur on the leaves, which I've, I, and we'll talk about that. I, I, you know, I, I store on the leaves in the barrel, the leaves eat up the sulfur. Um, Yeah. I was going to say, if you're adding, are are you adding 30 or you want to get to, I mean, is that a 30 total and then yeah. your free is going to be much less than that? I, you might even have zero free yep, yep. <laughs> after bottle after going through the bottle. Yeah, most, mostly right? I got zero free, you know, 30 to 50 max total. Um, right. You know, got it. You know, and, like if you've had to add a little, then you just add a little yeah. bit more at but, bottling. But and then there, yeah. there might be a barrel or two that got close to 50, but usually a whole blend, you know, like you know i'll i'll do an ad that's maybe uh 20 20 parts per million i think that's the biggest ad i'll ever do at one time yeah mm, okay and that's you know giving me some room if i did a five part ad before or a 10 part ad so i got two ads then i can do um and i'll do that at bottling or if i had to add a lot a lot more then i'll just do a little bit at bottling because there's already some in there even though the, the you know the microbes and the, and the leaves have eaten up the sulfur and it's at zero and and can actually qualify for for um, under ten parts per million sulfur, so that you don't have to put it on the label. Um, but it right. that gets complicated when it's on there. And yeah. when do I put it on? When do I not? And so we we just <laughs> we, you know the artwork is the artwork. We just leave it saying contains sulfur. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, even if you added zero, you, it would probably contain some sulfites uh, just naturally, right? Only that's, only that's... if you you sprayed sulfur in the vineyard, but you can you can actually get. Uh... I mean, you can get hydrogen sulfides uh, from yeast, and especially right. in certain varietals. But I don't, uh, in my mind at the moment, know that that actually translates into sulfur later. Yeah, you know, that would be measurable. I don't... Um, I'm right. not sure about that, but usually all measurable sulfur comes in from you know spray spraying sulfur is really the worst because it's micronized so it's soluble so everything you know yeah. and i learned this the hard way you know i had a a, a a friend that i was making wine from his grapes and he he got he missed his dilution by 10 10 or 20 times just way too much Oof. sulfur on this thing and and it came in you know onions and garlic we had to dump it <laughs> you know it wasn't no. it wasn't saveable and uh, so oh, no. you can destroy a wine with with too much sulfur in the vineyard does for sure. So I, just to give anybody perspective who isn't familiar with winemaking chemistry, when you're talking five, ten parts, this is like nothing. I mean, if you're in a conventional winery, you probably won't hear numbers lower than fifty parts per million ads. You know, yeah, like that as an that's ad. Like, oh. As an ad, right. you know, I'm just going to, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we start with 50, yep. we're going to add another 50 here, and yep. then we're going to, you know, we'll do another 50 to 80 to 100 at bottling or something like that. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, just, just so people have that perspective. Um, we're talking tiny, tiny ads uh, that you're doing. Um, great. So then, okay, good that we dug into sulfur. I like that. Um, now, about what, what other... Aside from, I mean, obviously that's sort of a shepherding protective thing that you do. I, I, I think I have the same philosophy. Uh, it, like only use it if it's necessary and you're monitoring. What what are you doing so you can use as little as possible? I mean, what, what actually makes the most difference? Because um, this is the unsexy part of making natural wine uh, to some degree, right? Like yeah. the, <laughs> the, the how do you actually keep it stable without, you know, without adding anything? Yeah, basically. that's great. Well... First and foremost, right, clean grapes. That's the best. Uh, you know, bird damage is one way that spoilage comes in, uh, in a big way. Yeah. Uh, Pediococcus yeah. comes in that way pretty strong. And uh, and so clean grapes, even from, from molds, which, you know, molds don't typically, you know, they're not going to grow in the wine necessarily, but if they've impacted the grapes, then you'll have that flavor. And something about high mold indices, I saw this at my day job, makes a wine more spoilable when the grapes were, were spoilable. Um, uh, we, we really God. saw that. And um, yeah, so let's see where else. Is it? Um, I mean, have you, have you had any instances where, I mean, obviously starting with the grapes, right. Is number one, but let's say we're, we've moved, you've got, you've got nice, clean, yeah. beautifully grown grapes yep. with a nice, you know, healthy population because you haven't done any, you know, crazy spraying in the vineyards. You have a healthy population of, you know, microbes on the grapes, you bring them in. Have you found, you know, have you found something happen where you had to sort of track down like, oh, why am I getting so much VA in these wines? And then it, you tracked it down to this or that type thing yeah. or oh, I'm yeah. just curious. about. Oh, yeah, things. that's always I mean, I think I've made a uh, hundred at this point, about 160 different wines in 23 years. Uh -huh. And, you know, and, you know, some of them didn't didn't make it like we hoped and you know there can be so so number two so number one is clean grapes grapes number two is clean equipment you know i mean i always laugh people you know romanticize winemaking and i get interns here and, and they're always 
you know, sort of bemused that basically it's just glorified janitorial service. I mean, that's all we do, right? Clean stuff. Yeah, it's just cleaning. Right? You clean before, you use it, you clean after. That's yeah. it. And so, you know, that's the other way. But, but, um, but then there can be bad bugs that come, and I call, you know, wine bugs. I call them bugs just to make it easy, but they're either bacteria or yeast. Um, Pediococcus is one of them that, you know, if all your fermentables are gone, which would mean sugar and uh, malic acid, um, then, you know, the wine's pretty stable. That's that's when I bottle. I mean, other, you know, the natural wine market, I think, got a, ba- a black eye when people were bottling too soon and there was some something fermentable still in there and we got mousiness. And that's a, you know, that's just typically has been a bottling tune problem. Um, but but it doesn't seem like it's happening as much anymore. So people seem to got it under control. But the, uh, yeah. the you know, so mousiness can, can come in. So I like to, you know, get those fermentables done. But pediococcus is one that can ferment, you know, uh, a, a, a wine that's got solids in it. And that's tricky for me because I don't filter. So, yeah. you know, we've had that one show up a couple of times and it's cool. I mean, the wine tastes like blood oranges. I mean, it's it's definitely a flavor. <laughs> But, you right. know, but it's not how you wanted it. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, and do, do you have, do you ever have uh, VA issues? Oh yeah, sure. And it, is that just an oxygen control situation or is that cleanliness? And I, I, let's dig into the cleanliness. How anal are you about cleanliness? Oh my God. If you saw my place, you'd be like, what the hell is this? It's a glorified garage. And we, you know, do we, all of my winemaking is outside. I have no covered areas. So, you know, it's pretty, pretty, um, but that's how I learned, you know, the space that I took over at Everett Ridge, which was my day job back in the day. Um, you know, it was this really cool piece of history, this building that was built in 1850 or 1870 rather. And, uh, I was using this space that they were using as a, as a trash dump basically. And they allowed me to, to use the space cause it was separate from their main crush pad. And then my weird stuff wouldn't cross-contaminate theirs. You know, they like that idea. And, uh, and so I did it. So I learned how to make, you know, wine with, with you know, insulated bins. And, um, and it works really well uh, outside. So, so there's no frills here. Um, we, we do have good sanitation equipment. I use chemicals as little as possible. Mostly, mostly we're using really hot water, almost steam. And we do use steam. We rent it for the barrels. Um, but those are key. You know, and we just want everything. It's got to be visually clean. You know, uh, I'm not doing, yeah. you know, some people analyze their sanitation stuff and hire people to come consult. And I don't do that. But um, so I'm not anal about it. I think there's a certain amount. I mean, if you ever had microbiology, which I did in graduate school, <laughs> I mean, it just freaks you out about everything, you know? Right. So my, my <laughs> Nowhere view, is safe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And so my view is just like, okay, you know let's go, you know, this, this piece, it's hard to contaminate stainless steel if it's, if it's been washed and, and cleaned right. properly. It's just really hard. Yeah. Um, so, but, and also sometimes okay. it's clean and it gets hung up on something that's dirty and that's just, there's just simple things that we do and, um, and, and we're not nearly as quote unquote sanitary, you know, as most manufacturing plants. I mean, it's a literal hospital in there. And I mean, um, they treat it like a hospital too. I, I think that's a bit excessive. And plus, you know, I mitigate my needs for cleanliness with my needs for less chemicals. See, I think that's really key. 
uh, and my niece yeah. for using less water. So we try to target, you know, make, do the right thing, clean it in the right right moment so it's not drying on there and sitting overnight and stuff like that um, that requires more more work. Right, right. Okay, I like this. I, I, I know it's, like I said, it's not the sexy part of, of winemaking, but it's, I think, super important that, you know, I don't know. I, I love hearing it. I love hearing other winemakers approach to these things too. Um, I think I skipped giving you the opportunity to talk about some of the grapes that you're talk, you're working with specifically uh, one grape. You know, I want to make sure you get a chance to mention this grape that you work with that is grown. You're, you're working with the only version of it in North America yeah, uh, or in the new, in the new world <laughs> potentially, like maybe all of the Americas. Yeah. 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 Boru, you. you know, it's a, it's a theoretically a Basque varietal that, that, um, they don't really even know the, the, the true parentage. I guess it, Jose Viema, who co-wrote um, Jansen's Robinson, Robinson's book, Wine Grapes, said at Raw uh, way back in 2014 or 15 that Aboriu was found on the side of a castle. And uh, it, it was already in, it, in antiquity and then brought back into the fray. Um, <laughs> who knows you know, where its true parentage is. But, um, but the, you know, that variety came... In the 1800s here to the U.S., it was called Early Burgundy. Still legally by that name, I have to put that on the label, um, even though we know. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, we know by DNA it's <laughs> Aborio. Um, it's crazy, you know, dealing with the TTB on on those kind of the Tax and Trade Bureau. It's really, you know, yeah, getting label approvals is really a, a, an eye-opening experience. And uh, and so you know, it was planted in in field blends up until you know, prohibition and maybe a little bit after prohibition, uh, but then completely, you know, being replanted with the onset of the varietal market, which between the 50s and 70s, you know, probably more like the 70s, then growers got paid more for Cabernet Sauvignon. They're like, what am I doing with this stupid early burgundy or a bore you can't even say a bore you, you know, so <laughs> farmers pull it out and put something else in. But my family kept this block. They, so the way that story goes is, uh, the the 120 year old field blend we call it the 1890 block. That's when it was planted. It goes into the wine that's called Abundance, and it's an abundance of flavor. It's seven varieties out there. Well, six um, that were all you know. So you can imagine these immigrants here. They 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 showed up. They went to work. Finally, they've got enough money to buy a piece of land, and then they trim, cut the trees down, and then they can plant something and. Uh, so they go to the nursery to find out because that's many years after they arrived. They got to go get cuttings from a nursery and they didn't know what they were. So, you know, we can see my grandfather took this small plot and put six varieties. They're uh, Muscadel, which is a white, not actually a Muscat. It's also called Sauvignon Vert, um, Trousseau Gris, huh. uh, and Palomino, which is also called Golden Chasselis. And then there's Mondeuse Noir, Aboriu, and Zinfandel. So that was their, like, let's try this out block. And then from that, they identified Aboriu and Zinfandel. Those are the two varieties we're going to plant more. And so they planted the rest of the valley with those, um, as did other immigrants. And then all of the Aboriu was gone, including most of it that was in that valley, except for my little block. It's the last contiguous planting of Aboriu in the U.S. I mean, I've given some some clones to people, but... Um, but it's it's the last one, especially as old vines. It does exist in in old old vine vineyards. You know, a vine here, a vine there. But those are you know they're field blended. Right. 
So what's it like? I mean, wh- wh- how could you describe it? Well, it it's it's a it's the most interesting variety I work with because it can do so many things, but it's it's got a low value because it's rustic. You know, so mm. you know if you take it to the to the you know to a really tannic degree, it's a big tannic rustic thing that's got to be got 10 years in the bottle, you know, before it's any, <laughs> any good. Yeah. But, but you can also make a, a, a sparkling red Lombrusco style, which I do. Okay. And you can also pick it to be a, a, a chillable red, which is mostly how I do it now. Um, to okay. that lighter style. Um, and then maybe I'll take a ton or two and do extended maceration which is just loaded with spice and it's, it's so beautiful, but they're hard to extend macerations are hard to, to keep around. They, they can, you know, they're a little, they're even more risky. Um, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, what about the opposite? So that's one way to sort of essentially reabsorb the tannins, but can you, can you press early and go to barrel sweet? Yeah. Yeah. I typically to... do, you know, to make the chillable red, it's light, it's like a rose, but you know, okay. really one or two days of, of maceration, T- turns it red with this variety so you got to be in hours or you know really no i meant like a red but like you know letting it start to ferment but before you start extracting tons of tannins that kind of thing like you know just a more a tannin control thing than like a stylistic thing yeah uh, because it's rusticness it tends to take on the characteristics pretty fast even uh it's got it's it. a heavy bodied blending red and okay. you know, so it take you know even three days, it's got a lot of tannin already. Um, oh wow! Yeah, okay. I mean, you know, too much to make a light red with it, and so so you pretty much have a really what I was trying to illustrate was you have a really narrow window of when you can take it down a different path other than red wine. Got it. Okay, got it. Yeah, <laughs> it's not tinterior though; it's an actual no, but it's close. You know, so t- got it. Okay. Yeah, tinterior. You know colored juice for those that don't know but uh but the the aboriu you know when you squeeze a berry it 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 squeezes out clear juice but the more you squish it the the final juice is red so any juice that's in contact with the inside of the skins is just immediately red so it's it's riding a fine line there nice okay um and then you had this sort of horrible thing happen. The flow vineyard was right in the path of the Tubbs fire too. Yeah, 2017. That's right. How's how? how <laughs> I, I'm sure you've had time to assess and how's it doing? Any is there? Oh well, it, I, I shed my tears already. It's gone. Um, it didn't. Oh wow. Yeah, it didn't survive that. You know what I learned? <laughs> so so the mulch um, that we use, you know, for for the regenerative farming that we band it what what in agriculture is called banding which means you just put it on top of the soil in a in a band or in a in a in a lump of maybe it's a long kind of hump and so you know that was a trellis vineyard so the whole length of the trellis underneath was mulch at about six inches high to maybe 18 inches wide at the most uh and tapering right. down you know so so it's only six inches at the middle maybe it's four but um so we're using that to grow these grapes and we were resuscitating that vineyard. We'd been farming it. Uh, it was the third year and it was just coming into its own. I had to cut off a bunch of cordons and we were retraining it to cane. And my, my guy, Jose and I were, were excited that year because as it was growing, we were looking at it going, Oh my God, you know, we're going to lay down some big canes this year 
it, next year is going to be beautiful. 2018 is going to be beautiful. <laughs> and uh... what I didn't know or didn't ever think about is that mulch is flammable. No, you know, (laughs) what a bummer. And and it's not, it doesn't look flammable because it's moist. I mean, it literally stays moist year round, uh, even in August, maybe not in September. It's dried out then. Um, But, and depending when the last rain was, but, you know, water wicks out of the soil, the mulch stops it. So you're losing soil moisture every day. But when you use mulch on top of the soil, you're stopping that loss and that stays there for the vines. It really, it's working for you, not against you. And that keeps it moist. So it just never occurred to me, even with that moisture, that it's flammable because, you know, it was, you know, the, the, the fires were hot and it was a rain of sparks. So everything got warmed up, wow. dried up, even if it was any bit of moisture, and then it just completely incinerated. So we, when I arrived to the vineyard, when I could finally get in there, the sheriffs would let me in. Uh, and we'd picked it. So we got the crop and I went in and I was like, oh, phew, you know, all the vines were there and you could see them. They, those canes were there. We could, looked like we could prune them. And so I was like, great. Okay. You know, so we lost some energy by the leaves burning off, but we're still good. And then I started to look some more. I was like, wait, that what's underneath that vine? It looks like there's, I see light. And sure enough, they burned right off the roots because the mulch, you know, it's like cooking your pork for 12 hours. <laughs> It just wow. yeah, burned them right off, you know, and it didn't burn up or burn the rest of the vine. And and I got the farm advisor over and she was like, you know, I've never seen a vineyard with 100% mortality. Usually just the edges burn, you know, you lose 10% of your vines. But oh, no. yeah, so mulch farming, you know, bit of a downer. For that. Uh, so now what we do is we pull the mulch away from the, the actual vine so that... Got it. You know, if it if it's gonna burn, you know, it it can sit there and smolder, but it doesn't have to burn the actual vine. Got it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that vineyard is probably super fertile now. Did like massive biochar production. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, and I think it did that that next season. It had a just a plume of growth. I mean, it was really something. I think whoever mowed it for them to mow it. The the situation for me was. Um, I was helping a woman out whose husband had died. It was his baby. He was, he had a little winery there and vineyard and it was in duress when I took it over because he, he died suddenly, uh, in during routine surgery. And, and, you know, so the, the whole time I was there, she was still sad cause it was pretty fresh, his death. And, but then to lose her house and all of their old belongings and she didn't have her insurance hadn't been updated in like 40 years. It was a real loss for her. And she's like, you know what? I'm out of here. And I was like, I get it. You know, I didn't have any money to replant anyway. So neither of us had money to replant. So she sold the land. I walked away. And that was it. Wow. Wow. Okay. Got it. Um, well, I don't want to end on a bad note. <laughs> 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 Maybe, I don't know if this is uh, a, a good transition, but do you want to talk more about... Uh, the soil carbon management company and yeah. the primordial biome. Yeah. yeah. So just, you know, it sounds like a really awesome project you started. I appreciate that. Just a little bit about that, you know, so from, you know, from the, that experiment, the, the old vines grew, regrew. And so then it just became every year I would make more and more and more. And then now I've got a ridiculous amount. And we, as it came last, yeah, the beginning, no, no. In 2020, Sonoma County did this thing called the biomass business competition. Biomass is anything that's, you know, uh, plant material. And uh, they, Sonoma County is generating an enormous amount of 
wood chips because of the um, the fire fuel load removal efforts, meaning people are trying to make things more resilient, less fire, you know, uh, you know, I mean, a grass fire is one thing, a forest fire has 60 foot flames, grass fire, maybe 10 foot, you can put that out right. 60, you got to run, you know, even if you've got all this equipment for fire. So people are doing the trimming, you know, you want to eliminate shrubs and brush from zero to 12 feet. Uh, and then that'll save your big trees. And then, then, then the forest, and that's the way it was indigenously, when the indigenous managed this country for 10,000 years, it was frequent fires and there was never a super fire necessarily because they never had that much, you know, material, uh, to burn. Um, and so, uh, so that's anyway, that's generating a bunch of material. The County was looking for someone to figure out something to do with it. And I was like, well, what the hell? I, you know, I do this already. Why don't I just throw my name in the hat and, I got a partner to help me write the business plan because even though I own a business, I have no idea what a business plan is. <laughs> Another <laughs> mistake. Um, and uh, and so come to find out, six months later, we won we won the thing. So we got a fifty thousand dollar grant to start to, to launch this, um, which means now we've got a you know it's just an opportunity to spend more money. We got to spend one hundred fifty thousand dollars to get a permit and then turn it into a much larger operation. Our net, our, our end goal is selling carbon credits uh, because uh, getting something out of the services that, that we're providing with this agricultural method and healing these soils. And we, we've applied for an $80,000 grant from the Healthy Soils Initiative, which this is just what they want to fund is farming like this. Um, and so, you know, those, those, those are exciting developments and, you know, it all takes time and money. But, uh, but I just love seeing... The, the soil food web, you know, back to kind of how we started, uh, yeah. you know, re-enlivened, regenerating. Uh, it's the fungi that are really the key to it. And it's just fun to watch this fungi, all this weird stuff come up, especially slime molds. If we were, you know, on a Zoom right now, I'd show you a bunch of weird pictures, but that'll be another time. I, <laughs> it's funny. I just, I, 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 here in LA, I don't know. I don't know if this is like a national thing i haven't even looked into it but we have free woodchips.com it's like or it's like free chip drop yeah and yeah so the arborists yeah we'll just bring literally like a truckload like you know i don't even know how many like yards it is but it's at least 10 yards of yep. wood chips and just drop them in your driveway yeah. and you're like great my yard isn't even that big you know <laughs> um and so i had i had i have literally like wood chip mulch on everything around our yard now oh, uh where there's not cover crops or gardens or you know where it's not where we're not trying to do other things and and then we even have piles i'm composting them and it was out in the street for a while you know we had it like at the curb i think our neighbors were starting to love it get a little felt like we were just composting in the street you know so cool. um and then all of this crazy stuff started blooming out oh, of it and i was like what it's like these little orange globes like microscopic orange globes that would create these crazy patterns and i was like what is going on yeah. and the the word slime mold does not do it justice because oh. there are these beautiful beautiful fungal things that take on these brilliant colors and they're tiny you have to go in and zoom in and then you look and the detail in them is incredible and i was actually using like the the iNaturalist app yeah I just like took a, i was like what is this yep. and it was like slime mold and then i would start rabbit holing because of all the beautiful pictures of these things called slime totally. mold. yeah it, so right there with you yeah you know <laughs> you got to see it it's funny for the for the the public you know dog vomit is the name of one of them and so that gives you, you know, the view of 
how it looks, right? But it's funny. I've got a picture of one that actually looks like a teddy bear. It is so bizarre. It it's yeah. up in the shape of a, a teddy bear head mainly, and and then they do these. And then you know, if you smell it, it doesn't obviously it doesn't smell like dog vomit. It smells like truffles. It smells like good fungi. You know, apparently some of them are edible. I haven't tried it, but it does have a palatable smell. Um, and it's you know, then you know that you've got a good heavy duty. I mean, and it's also primordial. That's where we got the name primordial biome for my uh for my, my product. what does that mean yeah what does that mean yeah well you know biome is is just you know a a, a culture a a community of microbes you know you got your microbiome in your gut that microbiome that, that's in your gut mimics the soil microbiome it's the same thing it's you know nature right nature doesn't you know reinvent the wheel it uses what it already has working and so we just encapsulated that Rudolf Steiner talks a lot about this. We encapsulated that in uh, in our stomachs uh, during in evolution. But um, but the primordial biome, you know, these fungi, their slime molds, they're they're also primordial because they haven't formed a, a fruiting body, a fruiting structure that we know as a mushroom. That's a higher form. Mm. That's a more recently developed uh, species. And you know, fungi are the weirdest species, as you started to, to explain earlier. They're still some that aren't neither plants nor animals. They're kind of both. And, uh, and they also evolved with plants. That's how they figured out that they could use plants and not have to be a plant, just be the cool self freeload. I mean, basically what they're doing, but they're, they're also a communication highway. So that plants are communicating to each other through the fungal hyphae, the fungal mycelium. Um, Paul Stamets talks a lot about that from fungi perfecti. Great Great website, fungiperfecti.com, I believe. Uh, yeah, I think so. Some great books out there, mycorrhizae. Wait, wait, no, myca something yep, yep. running. Mycelium <laughs> running, yep, yep. <laughs> mycelium running, there yeah. you go. Um, and then we, you also have Michael Phillips on the East Coast. The other, in the North, so Paul Samuels, Northwest, Northeast, Michael Phillips wrote Mycorrhizal Planet, uh, another great book if you're just looking into that kind of stuff. Right on. And while we're, while we're talking fungus, shoot, uh, oh, uh, how do you pronounce? It's chitin, right? C H I T I N. Yes. Yep, chitin. Chitin. Okay, because I for a long time pronounced it wrong. It's chitin. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds more like uh, 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 sounds more like Sanskrit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but there's a new. Uh, I think it's called Bactiles, right? From Lalamond or or one of the one of the labs has created a product out of chitin that helps remove VA. So it's like natural. It's like without using some sort of filtration or something, it's a, it's a finding process that specifically removes like a bacterial bloom that could spoil your wine. Have you heard about that? I do not know about that. That sounds okay. super cool. If someone's, you know, that's, we would call that biomimicry or, you know, using nature to, to work. Yeah. I, I, I love that idea. Yeah, yeah. I just found out about that too. I don't know how I, you know, I'm just researching weird esoteric wine stuff all the time. But, <laughs> but I, I, that was, I don't know. I'm not trying to plug the product. I don't know much about it, but um, just a fun thing about how we, we've barely tapped into the uses of, of, of these, these organisms. And, and there's this new thing that's being used for and apparently with some success it's been you know i think there's a couple products actually um back to less and something else and one i think one actually is for Britannomyces and the other is for va um, wow. so it, you have a couple options of using of 
natural, you know, just, I think it's an aspergillus mycelium is where they get the chitin and for the, for this and boom. Well, that's interesting because, you know, aspergillus niger is sour rot and that's the worst rot. Like, you know, I'll take uh, botrytis. I love, it's cool. We'll use that when we're, when we're fermenting, you know, if, if I got it on Chardonnay somewhere, I did a, I did a botrytized Chardonnay a while back, but you know, aspergillus niger is a no, you know, no non-starter can't have any, you know, zero of that because it does right. contaminate a whole, a whole, you know, whole blend. And, um, and so it's just interesting when, as soon as you say aspergillus, I go, Oh no, you know, but that's cool. <laughs> this is the mycelium. Yeah. Not the, you take the enemy and turn it into yeah, your friend. That's it. That's <laughs> it. I love it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, no, that's awesome. I love what you're doing. I can't wait to see how that happens. So can people, is it so, so far people can't, buy the primordial biome from you uh and i'm guessing this would be limited to sonoma anyway it's a sonoma county project for now it's small okay. what we're doing is i'm i do it as consulting so i've got uh a few other spots that i don't farm that are using the material and we're using it with some landscapers because we're still sort of in the experimental phase until we're fully legal if you know what i mean and so Right. You know, so I do it as consulting and we can kind of sell consulting services and then, uh, you know, the the mulch comes along with it. And I'm 80, let's see, I'm four acres into an 80 acre conversion. So I took a fully conventional vineyard um, and did a trial with them and they're going to do a full conversion to regenerative. And for me, that's that's my best work. You know, if I can convince a, a, a conventional person who's spraying Roundup and using, you know, conventional you know, products and tilling to go to a system like this, uh, you know, is a real, so you, real win. They, they, they employed th- this mulch that you guys have created. Yeah. They stopped tilling in those four acres and now they've been happy enough that they're going yep. full, full in. Oh yeah. That's and, and that's a lot of material, you know, you do you use about a hundred, hundred cubic yards per acre. Um, and so I'm helping her make some there too. So it's not even that we're, you know, that it's just, a money-making operation for me it's about change and and also yeah you know one farmer does it other farmers do it. so i got skin yeah. in the game there and uh and so i consult there i give a lot of time and also i, I get grapes so we'll trade consulting for grapes so we have a great relationship and, and we converted one block first and now we're we're going onward and we're talking about you know ten thousand dollar an acre cabernet sauvignon from Alexander Valley, wow. not typically what I'm working with, you know, and I don't get to right. get any of that out of there. I get the Merlot because no one, no one wanted the Merlot, although now it's going up for high dollar too. But, uh, but right. you know, she's <laughs> got the money. Yeah. She's got good customers. Right. Merlot is back. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and it's, it's important to say I had, we had a conversation on another uh, episode of, about how sort of, you know, what's the word? How homogenous a lot of the products that people might put on their vineyard can be, and how they, you know, there's like, you know, some bit like a lumber company in the Northwest where you're getting all these sort of waste products to make a, a mulch, and then that gets distributed all along the West Coast. Whereas what you guys are making sounds like it's actually terroir driven because it's you're cleaning out the forests right around there. So you're actually you're doing this public service. You're keeping it local you're mitigating fire risk, which is a, a win. And then you are also increasing fertility and eliminating the need for uh, conventional practices that are damaging the soil. So it's just like quadruple winning all around. Wow. Sounds amazing. I, mean, I got to have to listen to this podcast because you just summed up one sentence perfectly. 
you know, and it's, it's true that the fungi, um, you know, they're very locally related. I mean, as soon as you start studying these things, you realize how real terroir is because the microbes change based on their environment. And, and that can be from yeah. vineyard to vineyard. Um, but certainly if I'm making mulch here and I ship it to Massachusetts, that's, you know, th- those, those organisms aren't going to survive as well as the ones that are, that are there and have co-evolved with that climate. Right. Not to mention the fact that you're sort of shooting yourself in your foot in, in the foot if you're trying to reduce carbon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is the, um, the downside. You know, the trucking is the downside to this operation because uh, it does take, a lot yeah. of, but we've got a big loader and we use big trucks that so drops the shipping price and the amount of carbon, but it's necessary, you know? Yeah. Well, great. I mean, any final words? I mean, obviously please share, uh, you know, how people can learn more and buy your wine and get in touch. If totally appreciate that. Sure. So, you know, depends where people are, but oldworldwinery.com is a great way to find me, see more about what I'm doing. If you're in LA, um, uh, nomadic distribution has has uh, has the wines there and they're in a lot of places it's probably the i'm the most distributed there and then maybe new york uh through zevrovian selections just an amazing okay. natural white wine stalwart he's he's you know an old a young old timer <laughs> and um, <laughs> and just a really knowledgeable fellow and you know so that that's one way to find the wines support us you can communicate with the the website to to catch us directly and we can also help out finding, you know, local places or shipping something. And then, you know, if you want to learn more about the mulch, our website, we're, we're starting, a, we're developing a new one, but but we've got information up there that works. That's called soilcarbonmanagement.com. And that tells a little bit about what we're doing there and, um, and where we're headed. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Derek. I really appreciate it. Thanks for doing great. this. I mean, you know, because you're doing this is how, you know, our voices get amplified and, Thanks for your interest and and just you know even though I can sometimes be a little too much like a scientific uh, presentation, but uh, <laughs> but I like to know you know the basics and uh, so I appreciate you you know being interested in that too. Thank you. Absolutely, my pleasure, and I think that scientific element is very welcome. So that was, that was great. Cool. I wouldn't have it any other way. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.